Okay, this morning I'm going to talk to you about conscience. Um, Do you ever suffer from a guilty conscience? Anybody in here? Um, That almost seemed like an oxymoron to me. Ladies, guilty conscience, ladies, guilty conscience. They kind of seem to go together, don't they? Whether it's mom guilt or friend guilt or work guilt or sin guilt, I believe if you have drawn a breath, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Conscience has been defined as that still, small voice that makes us feel even smaller still. And one little boy said, well, conscience is what makes a boy tell his mother before his sister does. (laughs) Ray Steadman commented that the conscience is not what tells us what is right or wrong. Training does that. And that's a whole other thing that we could be talking about. But just plant that in your mind. Uh, But when we know what is right and wrong, it is our conscience that insists we do what is right and avoid what is wrong. Now, whether we follow that prompting is another story. Because of our sin... Our consciences condemn us and make us feel unacceptable to God, don't they? Many times it's our guilty conscience that keeps us far from God. We say, oh, how can he love me knowing what I did? Or there is no way I deserve forgiveness. I believe this has been the universal plight of sinful man forever. Ever since the fall, we are aware of our sin, and we try to hide. In Hebrews 9, we are reminded of what took place on a daily basis in the earthly place of holiness, the tent. It was divided into two sections. The priests would serve in the holy place daily. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and then only once a year to make atonement for sin. The people had to bring various sacrifices that were offered by the priests on a daily basis, year-round. There was much blood being shed. Access to God under this old covenant was very limited as long as the tabernacle stood. So, for over 1,500 years, God's people lived with this old sacrificial system. However, there was a problem. If you look in your uh, Bible at verse 9b, it says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Whoa. So how were their consciences cleansed? What did they do with the guilt they felt when they sinned? Seems to me all they could do was to Try harder and pray for God's mercy. But you know, when the focus is on the activity of the worshiper, all the rituals I keep and all the good things that I do, this only affects the outer man and cannot quiet the conscience. When I look back at Leviticus, it struck me that almost all of the bloody sacrifices were for unintentional sins. 
It said that when they realized their guilt, they were to offer a sin offering, that bloody sacrifice. Even on the Day of Atonement, Hebrews 9, 7 says, Only the high priest goes into the most holy place, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then in Numbers 15, 28 to 31, it says, And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Whoa, so basically, if they did anything really big and really bad, now I'm talking about uh, any kind of sexual immorality, uh, child sacrifice, blasphemy, murder, cursing your mother or father, eating the fat portion or eating blood. There was no forgiveness for stuff like that. Over and over in Leviticus, it says, he or she shall be cut off from their people, and in many circumstances, they shall be stoned to death, and his blood shall be upon him. So I ask you again, ladies, do you ever suffer from a guilty conscience? Perhaps you've done something so egregious that the shame just haunts you and you cannot get out from under the weight of it. Or maybe you hide that little sin that surely isn't going to hurt anyone if I just do it one more time over and over and over until it controls your life. It becomes your addiction or your idol. Perhaps your sin was so bad, there wasn't even a sacrifice you could offer. You would just be cut off from your people, or worse yet, stoned to death. Or if your problem was an unintentional sin, do you really think that bringing an animal to the priest for sacrifice would get rid of that guilt? Knowing some of us who love animals... I think the guilt would be compounded when we witnessed the blood of those cute little lambs being shed. So again, let's read verse 9b and we'll go through 10. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What is the time of Reformation? The Greek word for Reformation is diorthosis. It is used only here, and it means making straight and refers to the restoring of something that is crooked or bent to a straight position. 
to straighten thoroughly, rectification, to set right, specifically the messianic restoration. And some of you may have found it referred to the new order. You can think new covenant here. So this time of reformation is the time that Jesus came and makes things right between sinful man and a holy God once and for all. And how does he do that? Let's pick up in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I think the Holy Spirit is speaking specifically of an event that we can read about in Mark 14, 37, and 38. And you don't need to go there. I'll read it to you. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we read in Hebrews 9, 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see it? Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, has rent the curtain in two so that we now have direct access to the Father. Because of the shed blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb, those of us who by faith have been washed by that blood have had our hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh. Richard D. Phillips, who wrote the big book called Hebrews, um, says, Without a new heart, without a conscience that has been cleansed, man cannot come near God. The most awesome proof of this is what took place in Jerusalem after the death of Christ. Immediately upon his death, the veil of the temple was rent in half, revealing that the way to God was open. But what did the priests do? Did they walk boldly through the way into God's presence that now was opened? Did they look upon Jesus as the true Lamb of God who is now able to fulfill their fondest desire of drawing near to the Lord? Far from it. In the greatest of tragedies, they sewed up the veil again. With their own hands, they reestablished the barrier God himself had removed. What greater symbol could there be of the old covenant and its inability to bring sinners to God. Okay, so let's think about that. Now, you remember that we said Hebrews was written around 64 A.D. 
And Jesus died around 30 A.D. And in 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and never rebuilt. So, what happened for those 40 years between Christ's death and the destruction of the temple? Well, those Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah would have had to sew up that veil. They would have had to do that because they would have had to continue offering sacrifices. Um, And for those 40 years, they not only did it daily, but they sacrificed once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it is into this setting and mindset that the writer of Hebrews is making his appeal. I think this is what he's talking about in verse 8 and 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. One of the commentaries I read said that a better translation for still standing is still has any standing or still has any value in their sight. So as long as people were still participating in the Old Covenant and its sacrificial system, they were literally bound to the old way. And again, we read in 9b, but according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But then in verse 14, he proclaims how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, this is the heart of the matter. The gospel writer said, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus, Son of God, Son of man, paid the penalty for our sins. All our sins, even the intentional ones. He did not merely cover our sins, which is what happened in the Levitical system over and over and over again. He took them upon himself. By his death, the words of Jeremiah were fulfilled. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Think for a minute of the worst thing you have ever done. That secret sin that, oh, if somebody knew, you would be condemned on the spot. Friends, God took that secret sin and he put it on his son. In Colossians 2, 14, 13 and 14, Paul tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Ladies, You have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And your heavenly Father has said, I will remember your sin no more. Oh, but Patty, you don't understand. 
what I did. That, um, there's just no way. No way he could possibly forgive this one. Oh, sister, yes, I do. And you know why? Because I have my own little secret bag of sin that I thought could never be forgiven. And that is a lie from the enemy. Our God is so much greater. So here's the deal. Are you living your light, your life in the light of a rent veil or a stitched veil? It makes a big difference. Jesus paid the price, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He died to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And in 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, I pray you know this beautiful Savior. But if anybody in here still has any questions about it, please talk to one of the leaders, and we would be so happy to sit down and talk to you about it. But if you are his, then you are clean. And there's good news found at the end of this chapter in verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's us. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the giver of all good things. You gave us the law that showed us our sin. You gave us our conscience and the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin. And you gave us the greatest gift of all. Your Son, who shed blood, forgives our sin. Empower us to live by faith in this truth, by the mighty name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.